welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. If I could have you stand for our reading today. It comes from Ephesians chapter 3. And you can see on the screen, it's page 1174. And I'm going to be reading from verses 14 through 21. Maybe a familiar one for some of you, but it's right in the wheelhouse of what we're talking about today. So Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more that all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As has already been said, this is week three of our Inside Out series, where we're talking about this whole idea of being changed, transformed, from the inside out, what that looks like, how it happens. In week one, we asked the question, what is spiritual formation? And tried to set out some of the things that represent what that means and how that works. Last week, Colleen addressed the question, what is my picture of God? An important question as we think about spiritual formation. How do I, what's my default image or default picture of God? And today's question is, what is my picture of myself? What's the default picture of me that I walk around with? And I want to start this all off by opening my soul and letting you in on a little secret. It's not a secret to those of you who know me, but I want to just cut myself open a little bit as we begin on this one. No runway, no warm-up, no introduction, just get right into it. Today's question has haunted me for most of my life. Or put it this way, today's question has weighed heavy on me for most of my life. Or put it this way, today's question has remained unanswered in me for large portions of my life. Who am I? Do I matter? Do I have some incurable brokenness rendering me highly rejectable and only marginally lovable? For whatever reason, and we're not going to get into all that, but for whatever reason... These kinds of questions have played in surround sound in my soul for a very long time. Even though I've been a Christian since I was 19 years old. And if that seems weird, if that seems conflictual, then you're seeing the point. Using Paul's words, grasping how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ has never been routine for me. And though there have been spurts where I would say that I have rested and even reveled in simply being God's beloved son, 
And the reality of that, the wonder of that, the beauty of that has sunk into me and I've lived from that strong place. There have been spurts like that, but there have been other spurts of wondering, fearing, and struggling. And maybe some of you can relate to this. As we think about inside-out transformation, the question today is, what is my picture of myself? For much of my adult life, I have been emotionally moved, like to tears often, by paintings or paragraphs or songs that put language, words, to the aches and pains and yearnings of the inner being or of the soul. And I realize not everyone is wired like this, and my way and those who are similar can be insufferable to those who are wired differently. But I've done this pastor thing for a long time now and have realized through the years that many, many people, maybe most of us, go through seasons in our lives where we wonder who we are. Many of us carry a picture of ourselves that looks like not enough, disappointing, incomplete, permanently flawed. In the early 1950s, an Italian artist named Guido Giletti sculpted a statue of Jesus with his arms raised up in the air. But instead of displaying this statue in a park or on a hill or in a church, Giletti had his sculpture placed off the coast of Italy at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. And you can take a look at some of the pictures of it. It's still there to this day. The sculpture is known as Christ of the Abyss, a fitting title to a fitting image that moves me. Christ down at the bottom of it all with his arms raised in prayer for it all. Christ descended to the depths where the hurting and hidden and lonely and forgotten often struggle and wonder if they matter. Christ with those who feel like they've blown it. Christ with those who are on a first name basis with shame. Christ is lower still. He's there in the valley, in the pit, ready to help us rise by his power and grace. About six weeks ago, I came across one of those songs I was talking about that emotionally moved me. Turns out at about the same time, Jordan came across the same song. The song is called Christ is Lower Still. A peculiar title, a peculiar idea, one that sometimes some people want to rush to. What does that mean? How does that work? I don't think theologically that matches up. And my encouragement to you, any one of those thoughts comes into your mind today, delete, delete, delete. This song is about Jesus descending to the depths where the hurting and the broken reside. Jesus down at the bottom where the desperate are reaching for help and hope and healing. Let the king descend, living word made flesh. Lift this heavy heart to your throne, O God. In your wounds I find room for all of mine. When from grace I fell, Christ was lower 
still. I want to ask you to close your eyes, if you would. I realize this is an odd way to begin. But I want to be straight with you today. My hope today is not that I give a sermon and you like it. My hope today is that by what we talk about and what happens over the next half hour or so, the Holy Spirit opens a space and helps us grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for us, for you. That the Holy Spirit opens a space and unlocks doors deep within us and maybe clears away a barrier or two and helps us to experience his love in a way that goes beyond knowledge about his love. The next half hour or so is a time for us to ask the Holy Spirit to be at work, to reflect on these marvelous truths of his great love. But as we get into that, I want to ask the question again, what is your picture of yourself? How do you see you? What words come to mind at the mere question that provide adjectives and describe who you are, who you think you are? And if you will, let yourself go as far down into the gory details as you can. And my encouragement is to stay in this space and be with the Holy Spirit. And let's see what happens. So let that line sit there. Let the king descend. My hope is over the next few minutes, in your journey with what you're dealing with, with your picture of yourself, that together we would let Jesus descend and reshape it. So let's talk about the trap of self-rejection. This is the Catholic priest and writer Henry Nouwen's phrase. It's not mine, but he's referring to the subtle but powerful trap of self-rejection that many, maybe most, get stuck in for years, maybe sometimes for decades. Nouwen writes these words. It's long. You can see them on the screen. He says, over the years, I've come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the way they are part of the much larger temptation to self-rejection. When we have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. The real trap, however, is self-rejection. Maybe you think you are more tempted by arrogance than by self-rejection. But isn't arrogance, in fact, the other side of self-rejection? I know too well that beneath my arrogance, there lies much self-doubt, just as there is a great amount of pride hidden in my self-rejection. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Back to the question, what is your picture of yourself? 
We've all got one. There's the one in our driver's license. Go through the airport, show the TSA person. They look at the driver's license. They look at us. If it's a match, you go through. Then there are the ones we post on Facebook and Instacart and all the rest of it. And then there is, good, you caught that. And then there is the unfiltered one, plastered on the walls of our minds and of our hearts. It's our self-image. And it is mostly hidden from the rest of the world, what we really think about who we are. When you are alone, or when the noise of life, for whatever reason, quiets down, when you can't sleep, when you are driving solo over long distance and there's no phone service or radio reception to keep the thoughts at bay, when you look into the mirror and notice the hair is getting whiter and the lines in the face are getting deeper, what sort of thoughts bubble up to the surface? What's your picture of yourself? Now, to kind of keep this real, it is entirely possible for us to live unreflectively. People do it all the time. In fact, it's the primary choice of most. They develop great skill at muting the rumblings that come from their inner being or medicating those rumblings with activity or ambition or alcohol or pleasure or religion or whatever. They hustle through life without wasting time thinking about this kind of stuff or exploring these kinds of interior tunnels. It's also possible to live mostly out of what has been called our false self. Again, people do it all the time. We sculpt a false self. The me I think you want or will like or will be impressed with. And then we present this false self for the world's approval or applause or acceptance. And then the real self, our true self, hides behind this false self that we offer to the world. And there are many people, Christian and not, who are thoroughly disinterested in the actual shape and texture of their inner being or the aches and pains and longings embedded in their inner being, where they come from, why they linger there, why they're as old as they are, and yet these aches and pains are still there, and how these aches and pains might be healed. Many find the question, what is my picture of myself, the stuff of group therapy, and they have no interest in such things. See, in my experience, and I know this is going to have a little bit of an indicting quality to it, but in my experience, some of the most untransformable people are those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. Long-time Christians can be some of the most resistant to the Spirit's inner work of transformation. And long-time Christians can be some of the most resistant to the idea that they might be trapped in something like self-rejection. And at least in their own mind, if not out loud, right about now they're screaming, God loves me, I know he does. You know he does. Or you know it in a way that surpasses knowledge to use Paul's phrase in our passage. 
I'm not trying to point fingers at anyone because we all medicate and we all have a false self. We are all prone to whatever degree to present a polished picture of ourselves to the world in the hopes of being applauded, accepted, or approved. These impulses to do this, to filter, to cover up, to polish, these are direct consequences of sin and of the curse sin brings. But if we set aside our defenses and resistances for a few moments, if we do our best to say, you know, this false self set of clothing is getting kind of scratchy, so I'm going to take it off for just a second. And I'm going to sit in a reflective space for a few moments. If we do that, we might realize that a picture of ourselves hangs on the walls of our inner world, and no one else sees it. And this picture maybe has hung there for a long time. And this picture shapes powerfully and profoundly our thoughts, our feelings, the relationships we have, how we are in those relationships. It shapes powerfully and profoundly our defenses, our decisions, our habits, our passions, our overall way of living and being in the world, and our overall sense of peace and well-being in life. I just know that many of us, old and young, poor and rich, male and female, single, married, healthy and sick, every size, every shape, every race, and every color struggle, at least occasionally, with our picture of who we are. Because our picture at times says that we are not enough, not good enough, not attractive enough, not smart enough, not successful enough. We're too messed up. We've sinned too many times. We did this too much and we didn't do that enough. We're too far gone. The trap of self-rejection. Where does this frayed and flawed and cracked picture of self actually come from? Well, a lot of it comes from the wounds we experience in the formative years of our lives. Words spoken or unspoken by the important people in our lives. Betrayals and abandonments by those who were supposed to love us and stay with us. Events we watched or experienced that scarred our soul in some way. And in response to all of this, we may not even realize we're doing it, we construct a navigation system to maneuver our way in and through and around this mess. So we work hard, as an example, to prove to the world, and more importantly, to the shame committee that lives in our head, that we do in fact matter. And we are in fact love worthy. We produce at a high level for the same reason. We perform so that the crowd in our head and the crowd that we're around applauses. We seek to please other people, and so on it goes. And if all that doesn't work, then we settle for posing, false self. Or we just find ways to numb all the chaos and all the pain. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, if the Bible is actually true, if these words that we read a moment ago from Ephesians chapter 3 or from 
any other of a hundred passages we could look at, if the gospel of Jesus is as powerful as it claims to be over and over again, it should be able to reach these broken places in our soul. And not just reach them. And not just give a word to them for a moment. But if it's as powerful as it claims, it should be able to reshape them. Obviously, it will take time. But the gospel, the words of God, the scripture, should at least start the process of healing and restoring these broken pictures that we have. So let's talk about the truth of who we are. We live in a time when people are fervently searching for an identity that will give them value and uniqueness. Something they can stand on that makes them feel like they matter and makes them feel like other people think they matter. Now, this has always been a part of the human quest, but now more than ever, it seems like a free-for-all where the only governor and the only guide is what I want and what I think works for me and what I decide makes me feel good. Anything and everything goes as long as I approve it and it gives me what I want. And again, this isn't even new. It's an ancient and well-worn path where I or you make all the rules and laws and I or you decide what makes me or you feel valued and unique and that's where I put my chips. In other words, since there's no objective value out there, somewhere to be discovered, it's all up to me. That's not even new. What's new is the widths and lengths and heights and depths we will explore to find what we think is a valuable and unique identity. Here's the thing. Identity is important. Who I think I am is important. Who you think you are matters. The picture you have of yourself matters. It's a core issue of being in the adventure, on the adventure of being human. But a free-for-all where we are each our own commander and king is not the way God intends for human beings to find a valuable and unique and solid identity. The Apostle Paul was a highly trained intellectual heavyweight. He knew the Jewish law inside out, but something had happened to him and it changed him. And in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, the one I read earlier, he says that he kneels before God the Father and he prays, and you can see his prayer on the screen, that God would strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. He prays that being rooted and established in love, we may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I'm struck by this smart, intellectual heavyweight down on his knees, praying that Jesus' immeasurable love would be the source of our identity that we would be rooted and established 
in this love, that we would grasp, however slightly, its magnificence, its unfathomable greatness, that we would experientially know this love, like know it in our soul, know it in a way that it actually changes how we live in this broken world. It sounds as though Paul is saying Jesus and his infinite love are in fact an objective value, capable of imparting value and uniqueness and lasting identity to you and to me. But in this world, he knows and we know there are many competitors. And so it's something God himself has to help us discover. It's something God himself has to cultivate. So this intellectual genius is on his knees praying to God the Father that God the Father through his spirit would build this into your inner being and my inner being. Instead of chasing this and that to create a picture of ourselves that's temporarily impressive and applaudable and acceptable and meaningful, the Bible is saying that we find our true self, our true identity as God's beloved daughter, period. Or as God's beloved son, period. Who are we? Let's, let me answer, try to answer it by asking it this way. What is God's picture of you? What is his picture of us? And I want to quickly give you four words that describe God's picture of you. And the first is beautiful. We could read verses and tons of them in here and there, but my point is not to bombard you so you submit and say, okay, I get it. But just understand, we could find verses all day long. The first is beautiful, Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them, which means we were made, created in the image of God, retaining something of God right in us, beautiful. And it's why when it was all done, God said, that's really good. The second word is beloved. In Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, God is with the first people, Adam and Eve. He's walking with them. He's with them. He's giving them jobs to do. There's a relationship with them, a mutual relationship, an interaction that is happening. They are clearly and obviously his beloved. So they're beautiful. You're beautiful you're beloved, they were beloved, but here's where the story sort of shifts. The third way that God thinks of us as bent, and hopefully that's not surprising to you, that you're bent and that I'm bent. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all bent So we all bend away from God, except it's not bending away from God to go that way. It's bending away from God to go this way, back to me, where I'm now king. So we don't want him or his way. We want ourselves and our way. But even then, in our bentness, last word, we are beloved. John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Stop. The world. 
in its bentness that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For those who are in Christ, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us even in our bentness. And Romans 8, 38, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is who you really are and who I really am. Because of Jesus Christ, we are beautiful and we are beloved even though we are bent. She doesn't agree, but she will someday. (laughs) So it's not about me making my own path to find my own identity. It's not about me looking to you to applaud and approve and accept me. It's about me turning to God and surrendering to him, and I begin to find my true self as his beloved. And I love this phrase, rooted and established in his love, starting to grasp how wide and long and high and deep his love is, experiencing this love in an authentic way that goes way beyond knowing it or knowing about it. So lastly, let's talk about the power to heal. In verse 16, Paul claims that the Father has access to glorious riches, I don't know why, but that just makes me want to stop. The Father has access to glorious riches. Later in verse 16, and then in verse 18, and then in verse 20, Paul mentions the word power. Dunamis is the original word. Dynamite is where we get that word from. Power, he says, through God's Spirit in our inner being. Power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Power to know this love, to experience it, to live in it, to rest in it, to know it in a way that is far beyond knowing about it or knowing of it, and power that is at work within us to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Now, I'm just reading to you what this passage says. Those are not my words. Those are the passage's words. And based on what this passage is saying, it sounds to me like God the Father, through his Holy Spirit, has powerful resources to heal the broken, frayed, and flawed pictures we have of ourselves. He has the power to change our frayed, flawed, and broken pictures of ourselves into a picture of God's beloved daughter or into a picture of God's beloved son where we begin, however slowly, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep his love is for us. It starts to sink in and we start to sink into it in new ways. And his love for us actually becomes the foundation of our lives. Our identity 
is what it becomes. It reshapes who we are and how we live. See, it seems to me the Apostle Paul is not just giving us a cute but benign slogan when he says, I pray that God's Spirit would empower you to grasp just how much God loves you. Seems to be saying all the aches and pains and yearnings and wounds and abandonments can be healed, can begin to be healed by experiencing the immeasurable love of God. See, the Christian life is one of movement. It's dynamic. There's that word again. It's one of movement. Not striving and sweating as he does his work within us, but movement nonetheless. His spirit works in our inner being, Paul says. He can do, Paul's words, immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to the power at work within us. See, the Christian life is one of movement with the Spirit to become more like Jesus from the inside out. So I want to say this humbly, and I want to say this carefully, and I want to avoid any sense of manipulation or pulling levers. But ever since I knew what is my picture of myself was the topic, I've had a sense that maybe God's Spirit wanted to move us along in this journey. Meaning, not just talk about it, throw something out, oh, okay, good, yep, got it, that's cute, and move on. But maybe he wants to do something, move us along some in this journey. What do I mean by that? I mean, heal some old wounds. Heal some unforgiveness that sits on a shelf somewhere in our soul. Heal some guilt that is so ground into us, nothing seems to be able to remove it. Heal some shame. See, I can't read this passage without saying Paul wanted his readers to seek deep, sink deeper into who they are as the beloved of God. And that implies movement, growth. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to invite God's spirit to do some work, maybe already started in our inner being in the time we have left. And this is between you and God the Father. If you have sensed him stirring in you, either this week from what we've talked about or maybe the previous two weeks, about whatever it might be, that might be the work that he's wanting to do. And so we're going to trust God's spirit to be at work in this room for the next 10 minutes or so. This isn't a test. This isn't a contest. We're going to trust God's spirit to be at work in us as we're here together. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And when that's over, if you sense the Holy Spirit wants to move in you around this issue of identity and his love and seek, sinking deeper into it or anything else, I'm going to ask you to come forward. And you can come forward anywhere up here. You can go over there. You can stand right here. I'm not going to be standing here, so it won't be weird. But you can stand right there. You can stand over there. But I'm going to ask you to take what I know is going to be a risk 
and come forward. And you might say, why? And the answer is, as a way of saying, God, I want to move with you, I'm going to move the 20 feet from my chair to the front of this room. Just a way to say, all right, I think you want to do something here. I'm going to take the first steps. And I'm going to ask you to just come and stand here, maybe with your hands open, and simply be by yourself and pray and ponder and ask the Holy Spirit where he wants you to go and what he wants you to do. And as you do this, there are going to be prayer ministers that are going to be up here wandering around. They are not going to ask you if they can pray for you. They are not going to talk to you about what's going on. They're not going to ask you anything. They're simply going to wander around. They might put a hand on your shoulder. They might not. But you'll hear them praying a blessing over you. And the blessing they're going to pray is that God's Spirit would accomplish in you whatever he's stirring in you, and then they're going to move on. So I want to ask you to stand and to kind of enter into this space. Close your eyes, and if you would, hold your hands out in front of you as if you're in a receptive, receiving posture. It's good for us to be in spaces like this. It's good for us to remember that our God wants to shape us to be like him. What's the picture you have of yourself that you live from, relate from, react from, perform from, pose from? Holy Spirit, we give you the next several minutes and we pray that you will be at work in us in our thoughts be at work in our inner being bring to mind ways in which you want to move us and draw us to yourself as we enter this space if God is stirring feel free to come forward